Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, where each week, Dr. Frank Domino, along with his guests, translates today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. Now, broadcasting from the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester, Mass., your host, Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health, and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Eric is a 52-year-old patient who has had a problem with chronic low back pain for years. He's tried various pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic treatments for this problem, and yet it persists. We have discussed the use of opioids for this, and he knows this is something I'm not interested in providing. He asks about using marijuana for his chronic back pain. He has a friend who has used it and found it very helpful. He knows that recreational marijuana is available should he try to find it, but he wants my permission and my thoughts on whether it's going to be beneficial or not. Hi, this is Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And joining me to discuss marijuana and its medicinal benefits is Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health, Executive Editor of Dynamed. Alan, thanks for coming and bringing this interesting set of data forward. Thanks, Frank. So, um, not a week goes by without at least a few patients asking me what I think about marijuana and its efficacy for a variety of things. But without a doubt, uh, chronic non-cancer pain seems to be the most common reason it's brought up. Can you help us understand what the data says about this? Well, first of all, your, your experiences are matched by that of others. If you look at data from dispensaries uh, based on surveys that have been done, the most common reason uh, for someone to have a, uh, a medical marijuana card uh, in whatever state they may be in uh, has to do with things like chronic low back pain and headaches and things like that. So these types of conditions, even though uh, traditionally the, these have not been what these medical marijuana laws have been passed are about, this is what, in fact, most people wind up using the uh, substance for. So interestingly, there have been a couple of uh, major systematic reviews that were done. There was one uh, very recently uh, published in Pain that looked at cannabis and cannabinoids for the treatment uh, of chronic non-cancer pain conditions. And they really searched far and wide as a systematic review should, and they gathered both uh, randomized trial data as well as observational data, and together they uh, found over 100 uh, trials or studies. The total number of patients involved in these was almost 10,000. What they did was they looked at various ways of measuring the effect on pain, and you can measure that in a couple of different ways. One is you can look at what was the average pain reduction. So if you're using, let's say, a 0 to 100 point scale, you can say, well, there was a reduction of 5 points or 15 points. That's one way of doing it, and that looks at averages. The other way is to say how many patients achieved a 30% reduction in their pain or a 50% reduction in their pain, and then you get uh, either you did or you didn't, and off of that you can often calculate a number needed to treat. Okay, so this was a systematic review that went far and wide to identify data. Uh, can you tell me what the outcomes were? So they found that using cannabinoids in any form for the treatment of uh, chronic non-cancer pain resulted 
in higher rates of people achieving 30% reduction in their pain, uh, they used odds ratios to calculate this, and their odds ratio was about one and a half. For the 50% reduction in pain, they found a similar degree of uh, responders, although there were wider confidence intervals, and the net effect was that it wasn't statistically significant for that outcome. When they looked at the mean change on a 100 millimeter visual analog scale, they calculated that the mean difference across all the people enrolled was only about three millimeters, so not much of an effect on the means. And that's because the responder rates uh, weren't that different. The, the net effect in percentages was probably about four or five percent. So ultimately you'd get a number needed to treat in around 24, 25, something like that. So um, from what I hear you're saying, there possibly was a decreased risk of pain at the 30% responder rate, but that, that, that degree of pain reduction was fairly small, 3 in 100. Is that right? N not quite, Frank. So what you're looking at there is when you say the 3 in 100, that's going across all the people, including people who did not achieve benefit. So it's easier to say, are there subpopulations that might benefit even if other people perhaps don't get a meaningful benefit or get harms and want to stop and things like that? So the, uh, looking at a mean number for something like this can sometimes be misleading. Very good. I appreciate you clarifying that. So uh, one of my patients uses um, uh, cannabidiol spray on his back, and another puts drops under his tongue. What is cannabidiol, and, and why has it been in the news lately? So... If you think about the uh, herbal plant cannabis, it has a number of different cannabinoid chemicals which all have the potential to interact with our endocannabinoid system that affects a variety of things, including pain perception and immune function and things like this. THC is the one we are most common, we are most familiar with, and it's what gives people who smoke marijuana that high, that psychoactive uh, sensation. Cannabidiol, is, does not have any of those properties, and it has a, a effect where it, it tends to regulate the body's perception of uh, the effect of marijuana, but it also has some beneficial effects. And most notably, it uh, has been shown to be useful in the treatment of certain uh, uh, medication-resistant pediatric epilepsies. Recently, there was a uh, medication called Epidiolex that was just approved for this, and in response to this, the FDA has changed the classification of cannabidiol from Schedule 1 to Schedule 5, meaning very little potential for abuse. Okay, so, um, but my patients don't have pediatric epilepsy. What, why are people using it for so many other conditions? Well, like so many other things, Frank, people use it for just about anything <laughs> uh, and see what happens. Uh, and there's, in fact, no evidence that cannabidiol has any value for chronic low back pain. You know, going back to even the uh, studies that were done, there's such a wide variety of uh, conditions that are looked at, but primarily the evidence from all, from the, the highest quality evidence is focused almost entirely on patients with MS pain or patients with neuropathy. And when you talk about chronic low back pain, there's virtually no evidence from any type of uh, randomized trial or any other high quality, even a cohort study, demonstrating real benefit. Okay. I did see somewhere, I believe from one of my psychiatric provider friends, that uh, cannabidiol is used to treat chronic anxiety. Is there any data in this world? So there has been 
uh, some studies around this, but there there have been no randomized trials. Um, and one of the problems with uh, the use of uh, cannabinoids, I'll, I'll speak more broadly, for anxiety is that it has the potential both to help with anxiety and to cause anxiety. It, and so there's a little bit of an idiosyncratic response and you've got to be very careful uh, if your patient is going to try that for that condition that they're in a situation that's safe, the other people are around so that they don't uh, start uh, having a bad reaction and, and doing something uh, because of that. Okay, so we have Eric here and he wants to know what he should do about his chronic back pain with regards to marijuana. What, what advice can we give him? So I think the first thing is to let him know that there's no high quality evidence in support of marijuana as being effective for this. That being said, there's obviously a lot of anecdotal data and the absence of evidence uh, of benefit is not the same as evidence that there is no benefit. And so that's uh, important to keep in mind. And so, you know, Eric may be like millions of uh, uh, other Americans who decide I'm going to try this and see if I find benefit. And he may get a placebo effect. He might get a real effect. We don't know. But I think the main thing is it, we are now in a time where patients do have the ability to try this, in, in, again, in many of the states where it's legal. And so you want to make sure that you are staying engaged with him if he's going to try it. Get him to commit to upfront. How will you know if there's benefit? Is it that you have better sleep? Is it that you're able to work? If he's going to use it, is he going to use it when he goes to work? That would be a bad idea in most cases, depending upon what work he does. But he shouldn't be driving after he consumes marijuana. There's all sorts of conversations like that to make sure that if there is some possible benefit that he's going to receive, you want to minimize any harms that may be associated with the use of marijuana. Alan, thanks so much. This helps a great deal. And until we get better evidence, I think your words are, are very wise. Practice pointer. A recent large systematic review continues to find very little or no evidence for the use of marijuana for chronic low back pain or many other conditions. Join us next time when we discuss the evaluation of breast pain in women and the role imaging plays in its evaluation. And for more timely, relevant, and practical medical education, check out primed.com. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by Primed. For more information about the article referenced in today's episode, look under the resources section of the episode landing page. Need help reaching your CME credit goal this year? If so, please browse the more than 300 free CME accredited activities now available on primed.com. Thank you again for listening.